This episode of Songwriter Stories is sponsored by Piano Wars. Piano Wars offers unique, high-energy entertainment featuring dueling pianos, sing-along, audience participation, and dance music. Find out more at pianowars.com. This is John Fields, and you're listening to Songwriter Stories with Dave Caruso. For more than 25 years, producer, mixer, engineer, and co-writer John Fields has racked up hundreds of songwriting credits by collaborating with a versatile array of talented indie artists and chart-topping megastars. Let's listen. John Fields, welcome to Songwriter Stories. Uh, thanks for having me, Dave. It's a pleasure. Is there a story behind your nickname, John Strawberry Fields, and who coined it? Wow, that goes back quite a long time. I went to camp as a kid, mm-hmm. and one of the counselors at that camp would always catch me listening to the Beatles on my Walkman, which I had just gotten probably the summer of 81. And I remember I'm always like singing in Beatles songs. Of course, I have headphones on, so it probably sounds awful to everyone else. And uh, finally, he just like started calling me Strawberry. For the Be- <laughs> it's like a Beatles reference or something. And it just kind of stuck. And uh, later in life, when I became like a professional musician and so forth, they started asking me, how would you like to be credited on this album, you know, produced by this or that and i just for some reason i just said how about john strawberry fields and uh all the bands that i was in everyone started calling me straw b and and then i joined this band called greasy meal and the singer from that band's name is julius and i'd see him and he'd say i'd say julius and he'd say strawberrious (laughs) and that's how that came about strawberry fields forever While you're there, let's talk about Greasy Meal. Okay. You're a founding member, right? Yeah. So I was living in Minneapolis in, I moved here in 88 after the Purple Rain wave. And uh, it just kind of was a, a beacon for musicians and people. You know, it was almost like Seattle was after Nirvana. You know, bands were getting signed and the scene kind of got pretty hot at that time. And so I moved to Minneapolis about 88. Purple Rain had come out in 84. So Prince was still super 
on top and he lived here. So there was just an electric feel to the music scene here. Fast forward to about 1994, Prince had a sax player in his band named Brian Gallagher, who was in the original version of the Hornheads group. Hmm. And that was like a five piece, I think it was five piece horn section that played with Prince live. And Prince said, go make a solo album that I'd like to put out. And actually the song was The Most Beautiful Girl in the World. And he basically brought Brian in to play the melody of that song, but on sax. And then they released it to Smooth Jazz Radio and it kind of climbed the charts. And, and after it was doing that, Prince offered him a record deal. And Brian was a friend of mine. He came to me as a studio guy in, in Minneapolis. He just said, hey man, do you want to make a record with me? For Prince and I'm like of course so we cast the band with uh, what essentially became a lot of the members of Greasy Meal and we cut a record in a couple three days it was for lack of better terminology smooth jazz is what you would call it like funky pop jazz with sax as the main instrument smooth jazz radio was pretty big mm-hmm. there's always one in every market you know wave 94 or whatever it was called so we made that record of course and of course it never came out and the whole deal fell apart that band were kind of our our friends from around town and uh, the drummer from that band Dorian Crozier was in contact with a local club and that club was called the Caboose and he said hey man we can start playing Sunday nights if you want we should form a band because this band is great so we just kind of formed this band playing covers of kind of R&B, Soul, Stevie, Steely Dan, Marvin Gaye, what have you, and started playing three set nights at the Caboose on Sunday nights, and it just kind of caught on. And after about six months of doing that, we realized we should probably start making our own music and writing our own music because the crowd was starting to get large. And uh, we made a record, and at, a, at that point, in about 95, late or maybe 96, the club was packed every Sunday night. Just happened to be the right kind of zeitgeisty time for having a band like that, which was kind of a party, three set, half covers, half originals. I would say Prince influenced for sure, a funky band that could play, that had lots of long solos. It was also part jam band I can wait I can wait until tomorrow cause tomorrow might very well be too late I can wait I can wait until tomorrow cause tomorrow could never come Did you have just one instrument in that band that you played? I was the guitar player. Okay. And most of the songs are kind of a wah-wah type of a sound. And, uh, but the rest of the band, just everyone's super talented. And a couple members from, from Prince's band who had previously been in Prince's band. So there was a lot of tentacles going out into a lot of directions. Eight members of the band. So everyone had friends. And it was a scene. We were in our mid-20s. And people just started coming down and, and really it became a a big scene and fast forward to several years later, we kind of, we hung it up in the late nineties after making a couple records and nearly getting signed a few times, going to LA, going to New York, playing showcases. And it just never really connected with labels. And this is kind of in the pre YouTube era. So it was hard to show people the excitement of the live show without them seeing it. And, I think that was kind of what maybe led to the demise of the band was just there was, you know, the road kind of ended and we couldn't really tour long distance because we were so many guys and everyone started having kids and it just became complicated like it always does. We actually got together two days ago and and cut a new song, but we haven't played in gigs in a long time. Tell us about your uncle and how you became enamored with working in a recording studio. Wow. So... I grew up in Boston, in a suburb of Boston, and I had this uncle who lived in Minneapolis. Is that Stephen Greenberg? Yeah, so Stephen Greenberg, my uncle Steve, lived in 
Minneapolis. And my mother's from, from here. And his little, my mom's little brother, who was, I believe, nine years younger, which put him about 18 years older than me, you know, a younger uncle, mm-hmm. the young, cool uncle. So I'm growing up in Boston and my uncle is a musician. And he's, I remember in the early 70s, he was always in a wedding band and called the Kinship with uh, his cousin and my cousin, Sandy, playing keyboards. And I worshiped them, but I, I would only see them from time to time when I go and visit Minneapolis for family stuff. We're talking. And you were doing what musically then? Did you nothing, play an instrument? Nothing. Nothing. Just you just liked it. Just liked music and loved my cool ass uncle, who was literally the coolest guy I'd I'd ever known. It's weird. I, I, now I'm just kind of thinking about all the things he did for me. But but just before I even was into music, he just was plain cool to me, and never treated me like a child. Even though I'm six, seven, eight, ten years old. He would always, it, it, when you're with him, he, would, he made you feel amazing and like you're just the center of the show. And he gave you, he almost treated me like an adult or something or like one of his peers. And which I, that, you know, and this is the 70s and the 80s, it just made him so cool to me. That's and, huge. Yep. And, and I just worshiped him and still do. And so as I was growing up, he, he, would send me a new record that he just produced, say The Suburbs, Love is the Law, or uh, Fairchild, a rock band that was kind of like Queen out of Minneapolis. And uh, in about 1979, he finally put his own project together called Lips Inc. and ended up cutting the song Funky Town, getting signed to Casablanca Records and Basically, the long and short of it is that it came out and became a huge super hit song. And he wrote it. Yeah, he's the writer, producer, and the artist, and the singer is Cynthia Johnson, who was a great local singer from Minneapolis. They basically put out four songs on that first record. And the song came out, became a huge hit. And uh, I was in, I was 11 years old, I think. And I just, it just, it just vaulted him to the top of, of everything. Just, I mean, I, and, and this is before MTV and there was no live gigs either. So it wasn't really a live thing or playing gigs. It was just a record thing and it was in this kind of wake of the disco era and uh it kind of was one of the last big disco hits i would say got to make a move to a town that's right from So Uncle Steve basically is the reason maybe I'm into music. I mean, I, you know, I, I just loved it. I just loved the Beatles. I loved Shaka Khan. I loved Michael Jackson and Prince. As I approached my teen years, I started playing piano and drums. And, and my mom got me an acoustic guitar when I was 12 years old. And just all of it, Dylan, everything. I just started immersing. Did you look at yourself as a guitarist first? Or did you say, let me just dabble at all these and see how I do. No, actually, I still don't even know what my main instrument is. I, I, it might be bass at this point, but it started off just noodling on the piano and noodling on an acoustic guitar. And every once in a while, my Uncle Steve would come to Boston and take me down to Newberry Street, where all the music stores were, and buy me a drum set or buy me an electric guitar. 
you know, 14 years old, I got my first drum set, bringing it back to the house, playing along with Jump by Van Halen and just kind of freaking out and totally, absolutely terrible at the drums at first. But you know how that is. You're just, you're just so stoked to even have a drum set and, you know, in your basement. And of course, everyone else in your house is totally upset about it because it's just loud <laughs> and bashing. But for me, that's kind of how it started. But the, the magic kind of started when Uncle Steve sent me a Tascam four-track tape deck. Holy cow. In about ninth grade. That's an uncle. And a microphone, this crappy little microphone with a switch on it and with a quarter inch out. And I plugged it in there and I put it next to my drum set and I figured out how to use that thing. And I had a crappy bass and a crappy guitar and, and just started overdubbing my own songs and trying to figure out how to do it. And it's all terrible. Yeah, but it's magic because you're learning how to, when this goes down, you can play against it and you're playing against it after it's already done. And how does that fit together? And it teaches you things. It's that. And then it also shows you that you should be studying these records that you're listening to for the layers that are in there. And I just always had this ability to dissect and find the string line in the Doobie Brothers song, or just, I just remember something would come in in the third verse. Oh, this little cool part. I mean, a huge influence on me that, that came into my life around 15 years old was this artist named Todd Rundgren, who, the minute I heard it, I was just floored. What was your entry point, Todd? You know, what's funny is as a Beatle freak, someone said, you got to listen to this Utopia record to face the music. And at that time, I was into the Ruddles, of course, because the Ruddles were basically doing pastiche Beatle rips. And I just loved them. And then uh, this, this friend of mine told me that there's a band called Utopia that did one of those. And it's an amazing record that came out in 1980. But I didn't hear it till probably 83 or 4. And I just was like, who is the guy making this Beatle music? It's like every song is another song. There's like an Eleanor Rigby on there. Yep. There's a walrus. There's a, I want to hold your hand. There's kind of one of each of the major, there's a Penny Lane. But some of them are even um, combination tunes. The verse sounds like one song and the chorus sounds like another. that an incredible record and it just it, it's so strangely my intro to Todd and I had heard the hits can we still be friends love is the answer I saw the light those were not the things that really caught my ear with him um, but I knew them and when I heard the the Beatles record he made I just kind of freaked out and just started getting all the Utopia records so I kind of found Utopia first and mm -hmm. man did that strike a nerve on me it just they had everything. They had the, the four-part harmonies. They had all the Beatles stuff, but they also had the synth. And I was also hugely into Yes and Genesis and prog music. And they were kind of doing all that together. But for me, it was from Ra, 1977 and on. I wasn't really into the early Utopia when it was a little more Zappa-esque. I, I tended to gravitate to the pop side of the Utopia. For me, the culmination was the Utopia double album, you know, a network, just, just the song chapter and verse right there. Just, that's the one. Just try to, I, I, recently I sat down and I'm going to figure out how to play that song. I got a million choices in my head. If I could only choose the one that says it best, I shall It's weird as a gigging musician and I was always playing covers into my college years and through my 20s and cover bands, wedding bands, all that. 
it was always easy to figure out how that Huey Lewis in the News song goes or how, what are the chords to the Sade song or Anita Baker. It was always, mm -hmm. it wasn't a mystery. It was pretty simple. But there's always a mystery with Todd. How is that music played? Did you know when you were listening to the Utopia albums that he was a producer in his own right and he had produced other people or was producing other people? So part of having this Uncle Steve in my life was I knew what a producer was early on. I understood. He took me into a recording studio one spring break and showed me what he did. And of course, I mean, I was in at that point. But I, I knew when he said, I'm, I'm, I'm producing this new band, I knew what that meant. It wasn't just some like movie producer role. It was, you know, nuts and bolts, moving faders, adding EQ, compression, reverb, bass sounds, synth sound sequencing midi all that stuff i i knew kind of early on that you know what that meant so when i would see the todd rundgren you know produced by todd rundgren for alchemedia productions on the back of you know to face the music i'm like well that's the guy that sat at the board and did it <sighs> and you know so i, I kind of early on understood that relationship and, and what those words meant producer engineer mixer well, you're lucky for Uncle Steve because most people don't read credits that way. They, they look at, who, you know, who played the drums, who played the keyboards. Exactly. And so with, you know, with that shadow behind me and having all the vinyl that I grew up with, I would sit and just gaze at the Nightfly and just read every credit on every song on IGY, like who played the drums, who played the bass, the Nightfly by Donald Fagan. Just another one, it came out in 82 that just blew my mind. I'm a huge Steely Dan freak. So I guess back to this thing is with Todd, it's like I always felt like there's, there's music and then there's Todd. It's just, it's mm -hmm. totally different than anything else. Just structure. I mean, yes, it's verse, chorus, verse, chorus, but there's something else. The way he plays keyboards, the way he plays guitar, yeah. the way he basically voices those chords well, he has his own style in terms of chord voicings that is a combination of the Carole King, Brian Wilson thing, but also he has some bands that he's produced, like um, Pursuit of Happiness. Yeah, that one. That sounds very similar to a Todd album with a different singer, you know, he's, he's all over it. But then he produces somebody else and you say, well, that's not a Todd Rundgren album at all, but it sounds just like that group, like XTC. Exactly. Well, when you listen to Two Out of Three Ain't Bad by Meatloaf, for instance... And you just hear him singing. You hear it. It's him, Eric, and mm -hmm. Rory singing backgrounds with him, the three of them. Maybe Chasm as well. And, you know, now as just, I, I can, I mean, I can hear his voice in anything. If it's in there, I can hear it. It's crazy. It's like when I sing backgrounds myself, I can hear it. And uh, just, it just, it struck a nerve on me, his music, more than anyone ever in my life. I mean, I guess the Beatles were, the, you know, the closest and the biggest thing to me. So I'm not going to discount that at all, but really something about Todd is just super emotional for me. Well, let's um, go back to Steve one more time because this is all tied together. He's enabling you. He's encouraging you. Did he give you any advice musically or did he, did he sit down with you next to the keyboard and show you something that blew your mind about a walking bass line or about how chords work? Did he leave you on your own for all that? You know, he was a pretty rudimentary piano player. His strength is drumming. He's an incredible Beatle, Zeppelin, Cream type drummer. So what about grooves then? Did he teach you about grooves? Absolutely. Like just, you know, all of it. Like just watching him play drums as a child, it just, it really did affect me. But when he would sit at the piano, he has this really simple style. Since I never took lessons or learn to read music or any of that, I, I kind of watched and, and plucked on my own and I would just see him play pretty basic C, A minor, F, D minor, you know, and just realize that's all you really need to spell out a song. And I think he wrote Funky Town like on our piano in Boston. And just, I remember him plucking that out, just like this, that boom, ding, 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 that bass line and just that melody, there's no chords. In funky town it's just little parts mm -hmm. it's an amazing example of a song it's still kind of timeless in that other than that guitar strum jangadank that's the only thing that is mm -hmm. like a chordal information everything sure. else is like these little monophonic parts like a jigsaw puzzle that all just gets together 
and makes this amazing, you know, pop masterpiece. But watching him play piano, absolutely. He was also a pretty great finger-picking guitar player, and he was this Crosby, Stills, and Nash guy, so he would play Helplessly Hoping, and I'd watch him play that and, you know, picked up that style a little bit. So just really huge influence on, you know, what records to listen to. Remember him giving me Surf's Up by the Beach Boys. And of course, at that point, you're like, ah, Beach Boys. But no, no, Surf's Up. Check it out. Side one. Unbelievable. Surf's Up. Come about hard and join the young and often spring you came. I heard the word, wonderful thing, a children's So he would basically plant these records on me like, you need to know what's going on or Donny Hathaway live album. You know, just either send them in the mail or tell me to go get them. Or he would literally give them to me and I would fly back from Minneapolis from a family vacation with a stack of vinyl and just study. So thank you, Unc. Guys like me, uh, we only have like two and a half dance moves, you know, total. But in terms of the artists you've either produced, mixed, played on their albums or co-wrote with them, you've proven to be an extremely versatile dance partner as a music collaborator. Your credits are almost too numerous to mention in one podcast, but let's name a few. We have a group of artists whose music is likely to be found in many of our listeners' music collections, like the Goo Goo Dolls, the Rembrandts, Soul Asylum, Daryl Hall, Semisonic, Paul Westerberg, The Replacements, and some less household names like Willie Wisely and Rooney. And then there's a group of artists who are likely to be on Spotify playlists of younger listeners, like the Jonas Brothers, Nick Jonas, Pink, Miley Cyrus, Demi Lovato, Selena Gomez, Mandy Moore, Daniel Powder, the Dolly Rots, and so many more. But I mean, you're capable of hanging in a lot of different musical situations. You know, growing up, I, I just was open to everything and, and just liked everything. I saw the value in, in everything and, and was never anti a certain type of music or I don't like rock or I don't like jazz or anything. I just was open to it all. But, you know, when I started a recording studio with my uncle as well, that's how that started. But when I moved to Minneapolis in 88 and he just kind of gave me this paneled office room and said, start a recording studio here. Uh, you know, the, the jobs that I would get were all over the map. I mean, sometimes they'd be a reggae group, making a demo. Sometimes it'd be like a, a kind of a, a rich guy who wants to make, you know, a pop song. Sometimes it would be uh, a voiceover gig for the local art museum. <laughs> so you end up doing so many different things working at a recording studio on, you know, for the hour, by the hour type of place that you end up having to just, you know, roll with the punches. After getting that education, Instead of choosing to specialize, you stayed versatile. Well, Minneapolis was never a major music market in terms of, you know, like Nashville, New York, Los Angeles, London. So there wasn't a lot of like major label stuff going on. And all the bands that were signed to major labels were generally leaving and going and making their records elsewhere with bigger producers and bigger studios. So I never had like the best studio in town or anything like that. It was just, I honestly think that the two biggest things about why this diversity maybe kind of happened was because I was in a wedding band with my uncle, of course, as well, <laughs> where we played weddings and bar mitzvahs in the late 80s and just playing covers, learning how to sing background, learning harmonies, singing the third part underneath. Super valuable. Super valuable education. I, I mean, I highly recommend anyone coming up. That should be number one on your list. Playing covers. Learn songs. Learn songs, but do them Learn how, how to make an ending, how to read a dance floor mm -hmm. of people, how to play quiet at a function, 
that doesn't deserve super loud music. Just, just all those little valuable lessons I learned from that. And then the other would be the studio part of just working at a studio and taking any gig that comes in, any genre. And what, what eventually would happen is the guy would say, hey, can you put a guitar on this? Can you play a keyboard on this? Hey, can we put a drums and tambourine? And next thing you know, you're a pretty good tambourine player, which is an undervalued uh, you know, talent, to be honest. All those kind of filling in the blanks in my early 20s kind of led to being able to cover a lot of bases when, when the time would come when you'd need to play a bass line or lay down a synth bass or, or program a mini Moog or just all the things that you learn as an as a engineer producer coming up. Just, you know, this is before anything's big time, before you're working on major label records. Just, just learning, to be honest. And it's not, you know, it wasn't the most amazing work, but it started getting good. And what happened is I started working with local bands and some of those bands started getting signed. And that is essentially what led to, I guess I was a professional before that, but, I, you know, it led to working on major label records. And, and that was my dream was to, to, to be in the big leagues. Who was the first person you produced that got signed as a result of you work with them? I did a couple demos with Tina and the B-Sides from here, from Minneapolis. And she signed with Sire, and then I ended up making that record in 97 for Sire. That record was kind of in the genre of like Black Crows, Melissa Etheridge, Rootsy Rock. And that was my first real producer on a major label record job. But um, I'm, I don't know that my demos actually got her signed. But the next year I made a demo with a band from Chicago called Dovetail Joint. And the song was called Level on the Inside. And that got them signed to Aware Columbia, and we ended up making that record for Columbia, and it came out. And it wasn't huge, but it was a, a minor rock hit with a drop D. Those records were both mixed by Jack Joseph Puig, actually, which was my intro to the major label business, where up to then I'd been mixing my own records. Uh, but they said, hey, after you produce this one, you get to choose a mixing engineer. Who would you like to pick? And of course, I just picked my favorite mixing engineer at the time, which was Jack Joseph Puig, who had mixed the two Jellyfish records, which were also, you know, huge for me. So that was a great little bonus. And uh, that was another great way to like start entering the Los Angeles recording scene. You're in Oceanway Studio with Jack, watching him mix. And it was a really great learning experience. Let's talk about Switchfoot. Sure. That band changed my life. When I finally took the plunge and moved to Los Angeles from Minneapolis in 2002, the first real record I made within the first month was Switchfoot, The Beautiful Letdown. And the way I met them was through their manager, John Lachey. And he just said, hey, I've got this band. They're not signed to a major label yet. They're on a, a Christian label out of Tennessee. I think you'd be perfect to work with them. Come over. There's a bidding war right now going on them to for all the major labels want to sign them because they've been doing really well. And uh, come over to this showcase where they're going to play a couple songs in front of record executives. And I want you to meet them. So I go over to SIR and they play a little set. And afterwards they say, hey, what's up, man? So you're going to make a record with us? And I mean, I didn't know it, but I just had gotten the job to start making their record the following <laughs> yeah. Monday. 
it just happened. I don't know how it happened, but I'm grateful that it did. They took a shot. I took a shot. I didn't really know their music. They didn't really know much about me, to be honest. So we just kind of, it was just a fate that happened. And I booked a studio the following Monday to start and they were leaving on tour 11 days later. So we knew there was a deadline. We had to get it done. And the manager was all about getting it done under the radar without any record companies knowing about it. So we just did the records. The, we did 11 songs in 11 days. Incredible songs, one after another. Don't close your eyes. Don't close your eyes. This is your incredible songwriters, incredible musicians. And it was just the perfect storm for I was ready, they were ready, and they trusted me in mixing the record. So I, I, I mixed the record too. And then what happened is they got signed to a major label after we had finished the record and the major label asked for a few changes and they said, hey, you know, what do you think about having Chris Lord Algae and Tom Lord Algae mix a couple songs? And I said, that sounds great. I love those guys. So mm -hmm. they remixed a couple songs. The album came out. I kind of forgot about it. It wasn't some big hurrah or anything. And then over the next year or two, I would, I would start hearing bubbles of, wait, that Meant to Live song is a hit on alternative rock radio. And uh, next thing you know, the record's selling huge. And to this day, it's the biggest record I've ever worked on. It sold nearly 3 million copies. And it was you know, a huge change in my life because now I had a big record that, that had a couple of hits on it. And uh, it would be funny down, you know, down the road when you'd start working with, with artists, you'd, you'd say, Hey, why did you pick me? You know, what, what, what was it about me? He's like, when I heard that song, dare you to move. I, I wanted to get that guy. That's and great. that was me. So that, that song dare you to move turned on so many people to, to my work that, I'm super grateful to be involved in that. And, but you just would never believe who, who would love that. And I ended up getting, I remember I did a Backstreet Boys, a couple songs with them. And it turns out it was because Dare You To Move. The A&R guy loved it. So um, I'm thankful. And those guys really turned my career around. Everybody's watching you In the studio, the lines between your roles and your credits can sometimes be blurred by contractual requirements. The part that you add as a studio musician to the song or as the arranger or the producer could constitute something essential to putting the song across, but might not result in a songwriting credit. Is that true? Definitely. And, and those lines are blurring and blurring as time goes on. Generally speaking, 25 years ago, the band would have material. They would send that material to your management. They'd send it, you know, attention, John Fields. What does he think? Does he like our demos? Would he want to work with us? And you basically listen to, uh, you know, 10 demos of the perspective. Like, for instance, the, the record I made with Switchfoot, they gave me the demos first, Meant to Live, Dare You to Move, This Is Your Life. And they were lo-fi sounding demos and I saw that they could be huge and they were amazing songs and I said yes. It was a drum machine beat or whatever, but the song was there. The lyrics were done, you know, even if you're changing stuff, you know, you're like, I'm not gonna be the songwriter on this record. I'm the producer, I'm the engineer. It's just not in the cards. And the whole asking for songwriting for suggesting a the or an and is 
you know, back then it was kind of discouraged because these bands have publishing deals and, but every once in a while I would do something pretty major, like change the chords to the bridge or add a section and uh, we would get a slice of the songwriting credit. Nowadays, to be honest, just because I've done this so long and I make so many major changes and my manager ahead of time usually says, you know, just are you open to, to publishing and songwriting credit if necessary? And generally they say yes. So after you finish a couple songs, maybe I would say to my manager, you know, I think this one, I feel like I should get a slice. And uh, sometimes it's even just a, a global thing. Like you'll get a slice of every song and then it's not even an issue with a certain band you just know you're going to be making major changes and they're just open to it. And then sometimes you're actually doing an actual writing session, which is a different, different thing than producing a record and making changes. You're literally like yesterday, I wrote a song with this guy, Jeremy Messersmith here in Minneapolis and he had a chorus and we kind of finished the rest of it. Well, that's clear. It's, it's pretty clear. This is a writing session. We know what's going to happen, but lots of different scenarios can happen more often than not, they agree. I'd like you to paint a picture of what it's like to work as a songwriter and collaborator from both sides of the glass. So you're on the control room side and you're on the studio side. So for instance, when you work as a studio musician and a producer on the same record, is that analogous to directing a movie in which you're also acting? Hmm, maybe so. For me, it happens all the time, just playing on the records generally when it doesn't happen it's because there's a band and there's a guitar player bass player keyboard player drummer to be honest my my favorite projects are the ones where i do get to infuse my music and playing it's just really fun for me to do that I, that's kind of how i arrange too the bass part kind of informs the guitar part informs the keyboard part informs the background vocals and all of it together in the kick pattern. And I, I do like being in, in control of a lot of that stuff. Even when there are studio musicians, I still will many times, you know, say this is the kick pattern I think it should be. Uh, having programmed it first or maybe even played it myself, but then maybe they're a better drummer than me. So, or they're in the band and they got to be the drummer. You know, you're not going to kick out the drummer just because you played it. You know, you got to use the, the talent in the band. But it's really fun to do that. I mean, if, if, if you've ever done it, built a track from zero and played all the instruments, it's just such a gratifying experience. How do the majority of jobs come your way today? I would say these days, there's a couple paths. One is an email or a phone call will come into my manager, Frank, and they say, we want to work with John Fields. When is he available? Here's the artist. Here's the job. This is what it's for. We're on this label, etc. Pretty much, we want you. That's number one. I'd say number two is... A manager will call my manager, Frank, and say, hey, I've got this new artist from, say, Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> or wherever, and she's kind of like this. She sings like this. She's signed to this label. I, uh, do you have any ideas of your clients? You know, my manager represents 10 or 15 different producers, so he'll say, you know, this project seems like it would be right for say John Fields or Matt Wallace or Joe Barisi, for instance, and he'll send us the demos. And if any of us, you know, raise our hand, like we're interested, puts us in contact and that can turn into the job that way. So maybe they weren't going after me particularly, but I showed interest. Then they look at my CV and they, they say, Oh, I, I know those records or that seems like a good idea. Or even if they don't, that guy's a pro let's try it out and see. And uh, I'd say that's number two. Number three, people contact me directly and just say, I want to work with you, you know, uh, just through social media or whatever. And uh, I'll pass it off to my manager to do the 
kind of front man stuff on that. Do you have one main studio you work at or do you make house calls to other studios? How does that work? Yeah, so I'm based out of a studio in Minneapolis called Creation Audio that's been here. It's This building is pretty historic. It's It started off 100 years ago opening as a vaudeville theater. So it looks like a movie theater on the outside. And uh, at some point in about the late 50s, Bruce Swedian, who was the Quincy Jones engineer and mixer for the Michael Jackson records, he bought this building and turned it into a recording studio. And that then a succession of owners and renters over time turned into my current landlord, uh, a guy named Steve Weiss, who bought this building in 1986 and turned it into what it is today, Creation, which is a multi-room complex. There's a Studio A, which is large, Studio B, which is mine and kind of a medium dry room. Then there's Studio C, which is smaller, which is occupied by Paul and Ricky Peterson, uh, these brothers that are amazing musicians and producers. And then there's a couple small rooms upstairs for mix engineers. So it's it's the first time I've ever you know, worked in a complex with other people. The last several studios I've had, and I've had a lot over the years. I lived in LA for 14 years and went through about three, four studios there. Never had other people around. So it's it's kind of fun to have someone out in the hallway to talk to or to, you know, grab a bite with or something. It's 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 pretty cool. And then uh, over the years, yes, a lot of other studios, all the major studios all over the world. I've worked in London, Brussels, Nashville, New York, tons of LA studios. All you know, it's 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 really fun to go to a super pro studio where they have like the nicest mics, say East West or Conway or NRG or United or Ocean Way in LA. Just just the finest gear and the finest assistance. And sometimes there's enough budget where it warrants going there or some a band might want to do the record in Nashville. So we end up working at Blackbird studio for two weeks and that's really enjoyable for me. Takes a little of the weight off. I don't have to do as much, but I have found that having my own studio really just makes the work go so much faster. And I, since I don't have to share the room with anyone, uh, my drum sounds are constantly up all of my chains and, recording gear is ready and at bay just i mean if you want to play a piano it's up right now there's no like hey let's set up a mic and plug it in and get a sound they're all it's all ready to go when you make a house call to another studio do you bring anything with you besides your toothbrush sometimes uh, i'll even bring the the computer or the hard drive my startup drive so that i can be in a familiar environment which would be like my desktop and my plugins and so forth. And you know, it, for people who don't understand, you're basically working in a program called Pro Tools that it's like Microsoft Word or something and you just know it so well, but there's all kinds of ways to customize it. And those are these third-party companies that you can buy these plugins and instruments and sounds and so forth. And if you don't have all those with you, you're, you really don't have all your tools. So it's nice to go in with either, sometimes I'll even bring my actual Mac and hook it up to their interfaces or a little hard drive if I can figure out a way to do that into their existing Mac. A lot of the larger studios don't have music gear. They'll have a nice piano and that's about it. So you do have to bring stuff. But usually when I'm going in those places, it's because we've got a band or there's a session drummer and Cartage will bring over all their gear. But so one of the benefits of being in my own studio is that all of my gear is here. So I have you know, tons of guitars and basses and keyboards and synths and drums and snare drums and all the percussion and pianos. And so you need a 12 string guitar. You just go over to the rack and grab one and start playing it. A lot of large studios just don't have anything. So if there's a negative, it's that. All right, John, I'd like to name some artists that you've worked with and let you do some free association starting with the Rembrandts. You're so young. Do you know how I feel since you've been gone? With your dreams in a suitcase, face to the wind. That moment is over, and so it begins. You got a long way to go. 
I did LP and then the follow-up record, Lost Together. Those guys are heroes to me, both writing and playing and singing, all of it. I feel like I learned, stole, whatever you want to call it. Absorbed. <laughs> I absorbed so much, particularly from Phil Solom, who's one of my musical heroes. I mean, Danny's amazing and but Phil lived in Minneapolis and I kind of hooked up with him in the early nineties and we just hit it off and he has it all. I mean, just, I watch him play guitar and I'm just, it, there, there is such a brilliant magic in those fingers and just how he approaches music and how he writes music. And I just, I, I was so drawn to it. So I, I, that was another band. I just, I was so happy to be working with them, but I learned so much, you know, watching them it was also early in my in my kind of 24 track studio career and they had made a couple records on their own to be honest but uh they you know at that time we were just we were so into the Wilburys and jeff lynn productions and so forth we're trying to like get that going but also the jellyfish crowded house michael penn wave that came in in the late 80s early 90s um I was really stoked to be a part of those Rembrandt's records. Something you need to know about the Rembrandt's that people misconstrue. They did not write the Friends theme song. He, that, so they did write, so, and I'll just clarify for you, the version that's on television, they do not have a writer's credit. They went back in quickly as somebody strung it together and made a hit out of it by, mm -hmm. by stringing it together twice or three times and playing it on a radio station. So the label goes, go back in and record that song. And they said, well, there isn't a song. Well, write a second verse and a bridge, which they did. And they were awarded writing credit for that version, which is on the record as a secret track. And the only place you could buy that. And I did that record. That's, that's the weird thing about that that's why that record sold a million copies because it was the only place you could buy the friends theme because they didn't allow it to come out as a single you could only get it by buying the full record lp which is by the way a brilliant fucking record let's talk about the honey dogs sure so i met adam levy and noah levy in the early 90s in minneapolis and uh around that time they were in a band called the picadors where adam was not the lead singer um, and I had gone to see them and they were great. And a couple years later, I was approached by Adam Levy, the main songwriter and singer from the Honey Dogs. And he was wondering if I would make a demo with him at my studio, produce a demo. So we did so. And at that time it was called the Adam Levy band. And we did a three song demo. And around that time, my uncle started a record label with me and asked me to start signing bands and of course so the bands i knew were my friends and who i was working with so i played uncle steve the demo he loved it and he said let's sign him up so we made the first honey dogs record in 1993 or 94 so that was one of my early you know full record productions where i did all the songs and and all the mixes and all that so a uh, special place in my heart for that and then as the records kept going on and on and on adam and the Honey Dogs, he ended up signing to a major label. He chose to, to have me produce that record. That record was called Here's Luck. And I really, really love it. And then the next record that's not on a major was called 10,000 Years. And I think that's maybe the magnum opus that came out in about 2002. Ticket tape comes down, buying more bonds than every time. The melting that toys down. But Adam is really one of the most incredible songwriters that I've ever worked with. And actually, maybe worked with the most. I think I've done six or seven records with them. So with that, we've, we've just morphed through all the changes. And he keeps it interesting. Let's just say that. 
so many different influences in his songwriting. And uh, it, it might be Americana, it might be Bossa Nova, it might be Super Beetle, it might be just crazy weird world music. Um, but it's one of my favorite bands ever. And I'm just so stoked to have worked with them on that many projects. It seems like the Dolly Rot, you did quite a few. That's another band uh, I think I've done, I don't know, five, six, seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah, met the Dolly Rots uh, living in L.A. They got cast as a band in a Hewlett Packard commercial that a friend of mine was directing. A married couple, um, kind of a guitar, bass, punk band. And they had just moved from Florida to L.A. and they had just gotten this audition and they were amazing. And so we all we had to do was... I was hired to record a 30-second version of this song, Feed Me, Pet Me, which <laughs> ended up being, you know, they were cast as the crappy band in the garage uh, in this commercial. And, of course, we finished the, the job. We went to Capitol Studios because there was big budget for this one little 30-second piece. And then the ad guys leave, the director leaves, and next thing you know, we've got 10 more hours of studio time available at Capitol Records. And the band's sitting there and I said, hey, you guys want to make a record right now? And they said, absolutely. So we made the first record that day. And uh, I just, I loved the band so much. And then every record after that, we just kept punching them out. And they've had some success, a lot of good sync placements for them. When I heard her singing, I just kind of attacked me. You know, it was yeah. interesting. It was very punky. Yeah, Kelly is amazing. And uh that's another band where we just know each other's moves so well. I mean, they just sent me a couple songs this morning to be working on. And now we're working long distance. Uh, they moved to Florida. And now that I'm in Minneapolis, I mean, a lot of times we are together, but a lot of times we aren't. And it's still, you know, you can do that these days with uh, the studio technology and with like FaceTime and Skype. Now, if you combine Jonas Brothers albums and, and Nick Jonas, that's, that's going to be a big number too, right? I made three Jonas Brothers records and then the Nick Jonas solo record that came out at the end of that run from 2007 to 2010, I'd say. And uh, yeah, changed my life. Whole different level, eh? Well, just I had never seen something take off that huge and that fast and be that inside. Was that the first album? I think they had an album before, before the one I made, but I think it got pulled from shelves or something. And Nick had a solo record when he was 11 that was more pop R&B. Uh, but this came out a couple years after that. The record I made was on Hollywood Records, and we just had the most amazing A&R guy named John Lind. Uh, this is another, just a side story, but the guy who ended up signing and directing the A&R for the Jonas Brothers was this guy named John Lind and Bob Cavallo was, the, was like the head honcho there. And John Lind, the A&R guy, was, uh, is a songwriter. And so I love it when uh, the record company rep understands studios and understands songwriting and can speak in, those, in that language. And so one of the best moves they made was they didn't bring in any outside songwriters for the Jonas records. It was all written by the boys and occasionally an outside writer like me or somebody I brought in or, but instead of, you know, putting them with the top level songwriters of the day, I think that's why it spoke to kids like it did. It was, you know, the issues and the lyrics were kind of appropriate for, for being a teenager. Hello, beautiful. It's been a long time. This is my phone's room, and you've been on that line. I've been missing you. It's true.
for me being inside that bubble as it was exploding on the world stage was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had to just see these kids go from zero to a hundred um, and, and be part of honestly a really successful string of records and singles. It was really big for me and felt really great to finally have something that, that was that big. 2001, uh, Semisonic. I worked with Semisonic on their third record. I think it's called All About Chemistry. And I think we did a session for a week and worked on a bunch of songs. And I think three of them ended up coming out. I Wish is one of my favorites. I wish I could be more like someone you wish that I could be. No matter how I change anyway, you won't even say if you really want me. Um, but, uh, you know, they're from Minneapolis, so I had been friendly with those guys just around the scene here and they had worked with lots of different big time producers but they gave me a shot and I'm grateful for it. I saw that you had a Disney credit. You uh, co-wrote Fly with John Stevens? Yeah, so John Stevens, wow, that's another guy. Amazing rock singer from Australia and made a solo record with him and then his band, The Dead Daisies, I started uh, I did the first record of that and then a couple things after it. And he happened to be in the studio that week. And every once in a while, I would get a call from my publisher at Disney and say, hey, we're looking for a song for this particular movie. And you never get them. I mean, you, you try. You write a song and you never, it never lands for some reason. But this time they said, uh, yeah, we're looking for a song for this movie, Planes. And, you know, Planes, you know it's going to be big. It's a Pixar film. And... Uh, they said, we, we're looking for like a rock song somewhere in the Aerosmith, Lenny Kravitz zone. told John who I was you know he was with me that week I said hey do you want to try writing a song for this and he said sounds great did it the next day in like an hour sent it over to the film company and they just flipped so we finished up that song and it came out on planes and you know really really it's just one of those ones where it's like you can't believe it happened but it just it just did one of our previous guests was Willie Wisely and uh, you did a couple albums with him and you wrote Bygones with Ben O'Nelson, Andy Sullivan, and Willie. That particular song is my homage to everything. I mean, that song is the most wild, craziest ride. Uh, no Pro Tools, no computers on that. That's fully tape. So it's just really Willie Wisely. You know, his, he was just cool with me going pastiche on it, on everything. I mean, I, I just, I learned so much from him and together with him, we kind of forged this, this, path of making what I think is, you know, one of his best records, She, followed by Turbo Sherbet, but... And his most recent one. And the most recent one, yeah. Face the Sun. Face the Sun, yep. But back then, it would be like he'd, he'd come in with a song idea, we'd uh, just jam it out, and, you know, same kind of thing. Do it all in a day. That drum track is out of control by my great friend Dorian Crozier mm -hmm. on, on Bygones. And I remember there's just some crazy, crazy shit on that song. <laughs> I mean, all of it has a ELO section and half speed vocals and just insane 
XTC stuff and just, I don't know. I was just jamming it all in there and really fun to, to have someone who's open to. He's fearless. Well, he's, and he lets me slather all this stuff on there and without complaining. So John field, it's been so enjoyable talking with you. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Dave. You've been listening to Songwriter Stories, Episode 15 with John Fields. There's more to this podcast than just the interview. For bonus content, visit songwriterstories.com and click on the Writer's Room link for this episode. If you like the show, please review us wherever you listen. Your positive review will help new listeners find our show. That's all for now. I'm Dave Caruso, and I'll see you next time.